Welcome to Bots and Bouts from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Burningham. I'm sorry if my voice sounds a little scratchy this week. Like much of California, the San Francisco Bay Area has been inundated with smoke from the deadly fires up north. There are still nearly 1,000 people listed as missing as I recorded this. I waited for the disinformation to come after those fires, and it did. There was one online story that implied the fires were set on purpose and matched the map of a planned high-speed rail in California. There were a few problems with it. The map wasn't actually of fires, but of high wind danger, and even then it didn't match up with any of the high-speed rail maps, although it did run the length of California. There were also pictures of what looked like lasers hitting fire areas, but those were either lens flares or doctored photos. As always, be careful who you follow online. On that note, I'm going back to my roots today. My first episode was with Samuel Woolley, an expert in computational propaganda, and it was about the 2016 election. Today, I'm talking to Jonathan Morgan, another expert in online disinformation about how the 2018 election went. Morgan is an expert on radicalization. He's done work with NATO and the African Union, as well as the State Department. He's the CEO of New Knowledge, a company that focuses on disinformation and the founder of Data for Democracy, a group trying to ensure data is used for good. Jonathan Morgan, thank you so much for coming on Bots and Ballots. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Looking at this, we know that 2016 was a mess. How was 2018 in the election that we just finished? 2018 was different. So I think on the plus side, a lot of the tactics that we saw in 2016, especially a lot of the obvious stuff that we now associate with Russian disinformation, specifically bot networks, kind of rampant amplification of social media content, these kind of almost caricaturish personas that were meant to represent Texans who believed in secession or people obsessed with immigration. Some of that stuff was successfully handled. What was different about 2018 was how much influence actual attributed state propaganda had and how much adoption there was, often by actual Americans, of that content and those messages, in addition to kind of full-on domestic disinformation campaigns. So using the same tools and tactics of foreign influence, but domestic political groups that were using those tactics on on Americans to shape discourse for their own political agenda. So when you say state-sponsored propaganda or state-sponsored outlets, what outlets are you referring to specifically? Well, there's the ones that I think most folks will be familiar with, outlets like Russia Today or Sputnik. But we also found sort of smaller, one-off I guess what used to be characterized as kind of fake news publications, but are I think outlets that consider themselves to be legitimate, but are more or less parroting kind of state media talking points, or maybe they're considered almost like think tanks or research institutions, but have ties to Kremlin-based funding sources. I think this is where it gets into even more of a gray area than what we were dealing with in 2016. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of these publications existing, but ideas that typically we've associated with Russian propaganda outlets are becoming part of mainstream American political discourse, which is more success on this overt propaganda side than than I think most Americans would have expected from a hostile foreign country like Russia. This isn't fake news. This would be slanted news or something like that. Yeah, that's right. The quote unquote like truthiness <laughs> of content or that you know the veracity of the information is important, but by and large, the real problem is about distribution 
the way that that content is amplified and distributed online is where it starts we're basically manipulating the distribution mechanics of these social media platforms in order to shape public consensus um, in a way that is kind of opaque and difficult to understand or recognize by the people who are being influenced so whether it's fake or hyperpartisan or slanted for us usually not really the core issue so it sounds like fake news in just the bald lie sense is sort of dying. Is is that true? And it's become more subtle? I think so. I think the outright fake content, you know, Pope endorses Donald Trump for president kind of kind of stories that were easily provably false. I think the platforms have been successful at reducing that content with their with their third party partners, usually fact checking organizations and journalists. But the the kind of hyper-partisan content or the conspiratorial content, you know, Alex Jones and Infowars and, uh, and that type of material, that latter category where it's conspiracy theories and hyper-partisan content is just as successful as it ever was, if not more so. Can you give me some headlines which were successful in 2018 and were spread far and wide, which kind of fit that rubric? Yeah, I think most of the reporting on the so-called migrant caravan was driven from kind of conspiratorial corners of the internet. George Soros funding the migrant caravan was kind of a ridiculous conspiracy theory in the same way that George Soros funding protesters around the country is kind of a ridiculous conspiracy theory. I think at one point it became George Soros partnering with the Clintons to somehow drive the migrant caravan up through Mexico and across the border so that they could vote illegally in the midterm elections. Like that whole news cycle was dominated by this type of conspiratorial fear mongering. What makes that one, I think, important to focus on and a little bit emblematic is that some of those conspiracy theories were outright restated by public officials, you know, members of Congress, and to sometimes even from the administration, from the, you know, the president and his staff. And I think. That's where the real change, I think, where ultimately the real danger is. I talked to the head of USA Really, which I don't know if you're aware of them. They're the Russian outlet in America that's doing news. The man who shot up the synagogue in Pennsylvania, one of the images that he shared on social media before he committed those murders was of a truck in the caravan that appeared to have a Star of David on the door. And that apparently originated in USA, really. I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about how that ecosystem works. Like, how how does someone who is radicalized or on the verge of being radicalized get their information? How do they share it? And what path does it take? I think it's important that you use the word radicalized. I think that's the right characterization. Many of us who focus on this problem of social media disinformation originally started focusing on social media because we were concerned about people being radicalized into terrorist organizations like ISIS. And the dynamic is that somebody is amenable to this type of content for one reason or another. Maybe they feel emotionally disenfranchised or alone or that they're discriminated against because of some part of their identity. And they find solace in these online spaces that are basically filling that emotional hole, telling them that it's okay, that they're justified in their anger. You get introduced to the content, and then you start consuming it, you start engaging with it, you start sharing it. And what's interesting about this model is that the social media companies are designed to give you more of what you like 
the way that they figure out what you like is that they look at other people who've shared the same content and they go, okay, people like you like content like this. But if you happen to think that vaccines cause autism, oh, well, people like you also like content about how the earth is flat and about how chemtrails are giving us all cancer and how your cell phone is infecting your brain with the zombie virus or something, whatever the you know kind of ridiculous conspiracy theory is. But that's how people get pulled into these rabbit holes because it turns out that if you engage with this kind of hyper-partisan, almost like a um, so partisan, so extreme that it's like you're creating a separate worldview, like a kind of a separate perspective on the world from everybody else, it just gets reinforced because the social media platforms think that they're giving you more of what you like because you're engaging more and more and more with the content. Basically, you get pulled into what used to be called a filter bubble, these kind of like hyper-radicalized online spaces, and you consume that content to the point that it changes your perception of reality. You brought up the example of the man who committed the terrorist act in the uh, synagogue. But I think a similar example was the Pizzagate conspiracy, as kind of ridiculous as that sounds. If you remember, there was a man who drove to a Washington, D.C., you know, suburban pizza joint and brandished his automatic weapon, demanding that the pizza place free the children who were being held hostage in the back because that was the online conspiracy theory. And this was like an otherwise well-adjusted, well-intentioned Boy Scout of a man who was just trying to do the right thing. And the reason that his head went to that place, the reason that you know he concluded that he had like a moral obligation to take that action is because all of the content that he consumed told him that that was reality. And I think that's the dynamic that I don't think people fully appreciate. The way that we all shape our reality is based on the opinions of everybody who's around us. And when we consume all of our information online and we're in these very immersive spaces where all of the content is the same and all of the people around us have the same opinions and share the same information, we start to believe that reality is what we read on the Internet. And of course, that can be shaped intentionally or it can be shaped accidentally, but that's how people find their way into these these spaces that are almost designed to radicalize them towards these extremist points of view. So I know you started early in your career looking at ISIS, and then it sort of shifted to alt-right. And I also know that there's been a lot of, for instance, a Google program which diverts people on the path of radicalization who would end up in an organization like ISIS can you talk about specifically what Google has done with Islamic radicalization and whether or not that's worked? Absolutely. So I think the social media companies um, have experimented with two tactics. One is removing the terrorist content in the first place, which for a while there was some debate. Is that just whack-a-mole? Are people going to find it anyway? And what studies have shown is that that is effective. You don't want to make it easy for people to discover this type of content. So that's one tactic. Google does that as well. They remove content that's associated with ISIS from search results and things like that. But the other thing that Google has done that's really interesting is that they call it their redirect program. So they'll algorithmically discover that somebody is searching for content about ISIS. Maybe they're interested in ISIS for one reason or another or other types of terrorist organizations. And then instead of showing that user content that is kind of reinforcing that ideology, basically they're not surfacing propaganda from the terrorist organizations. They're instead showing people content that undermines the credibility and authority 
of those terrorist organizations. So they might show somebody a video of ISIS defectors who are people who you know, maybe traveled to Syria to join ISIS, realized that that organization's a fraud, and then left and, and are ready to tell the world how basically how terrible it is to live under ISIS rule. I don't know the exact numbers, but the measurements that Google have taken are that people view those videos at a higher than average rate. People engage with those videos for uh, longer than um, longer than average. Hopefully, this ultimately changes their behavior, but they don't dismiss it, I think is the kind of important first statistic. So that's that's the type of thing that we've seen Google implement. And I think other social media companies may be starting to experiment with. But so far, that's the only published evidence that programs like that are effective in reducing the amount of radicalization online. If I can play the optimist for a minute, are we just going to get smarter? You know, there was this QAnon conspiracy, which had quite a bit of durability and went on for a long time. And it appears to be falling apart with, you know, certain revelations which didn't match the Q theory. Are those people going to fall back into new conspiracies? Are they just going to get smarter and, and learn that that's not a world they should go into? Are we all kind of learning together? I hope so. I, I, I very much hope so, that we're all learning together. I think the real thing that we've missed as a society is that we never thought about how we wanted to take our offline values and encode those into our online spaces. Um, we just assumed it all worked out, and it didn't. In real life, I think... We have some pretty good systems for figuring out what's real and what isn't. We have some pretty good systems for deciding who's trustworthy and who isn't. It's not perfect, but, you know, we ultimately get there. The same isn't true online yet, but I think that we'll get there because it, as a species, we figured it out. So now we just have to figure out how we do it on the Internet. I think the social media platforms, I think lawmakers, educators, the general public, like we're all stakeholders in this solution. And so we're going to have to work together if it's going to be realized. But I do think it's possible. So if we survive social media, we will be a kinder, smarter species. <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. If we, I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but sure. If we make it out of this okay, then I think we'll be stronger for it. So your company has this dashboard up where you can see kind of the latest disinformation that's going around. I'm wondering what, what's on it right now, if you could kind of walk me through what it looks like right now. Yeah, actually, do you mind if I open my laptop so I can look at it with you? All right. We're tracking a couple different discrete networks online. So right now I'm looking at the, the hashtags and the keywords that were the most used by this, what we think of as a, a domestic network. So this is a, a network of accounts that are focusing their conversation primarily on things that impact the U.S. population. When you say network, this is a combination of bots and people, or is this just people? Well, we don't make much of a characterization between bots or not bots. I think usually what people mean is like disingenuous and real. When they say bots and not bots, there's some sense of like whether or not the accounts are automated. In our experience, it's usually a spectrum. Um, some accounts are completely automated. We see a lot less of that now than we used to. Um, the social media companies have started treating that fully automated content more like spam. Um, but usually... People's accounts are partially automated by some service. They also do some publishing themselves. Maybe they engage in behaviors that are kind of bot-like, where somebody sends them a list of 50 tweets and they retweet each one of them in short sequence because they're working together in some other space to coordinate their activity in order to amplify each other. Like All of these things are one way or another designed to promote content on these platforms and make sure that it's visible to more people in a very intentional, focused way. Let's say I follow 50 of these 
2,000 accounts, and I see in my feed every day the same message about – I'm just looking at some of the things that are showing up on the dashboard um, – the same you know hashtags about QAnon and, and voter fraud and Broward County. And I think, oh, people are really passionate about this. Like clearly it shows up in my feed all the time. But what I don't realize is that those 50 accounts are part of a larger network that has an agenda that they're trying to push. You know, you can see that this domestic network is more focused on domestic issues, and so they're talking about uh, the race in Florida, um, the kind of ongoing recount in Florida, um, and then generally these um, – we've seen them talking a lot about the races that have continued past Election Day because there's been recounts or other inconsistencies. And, of course, in these more conspiratorial communities, that leads to conversations about you know, voter fraud and immigrants, quote-unquote, you know, invading the country to vote illegally in elections and things like that. If I could dig in on this organization a little bit further, is this an organic group of people who are trying to push this idea, or is this being funded by somebody? And do you know who's funding it? To us, it doesn't look organic. That much I can say. So there's a difference between content that is organically spreading by people who are interested in the same information or interested in the same stories, and they share it from one person to another, and it grows virally. That's one pattern. But what we see from this network is a couple thousand accounts that are working together to intentionally kind of manufacture virality. But from our point of view, if the way that content is distributed isn't inherently organic, if it's coordinated in any way, we feel like it's worth further investigation. And how many of these organizations are you tracking at any time? Dozens, usually, for a variety of reasons. They might be politically focused in this case. Um, we think perhaps associated with you know one country or another or you know kind of one um, one actor or another for some reason, um, or they might be focused on something that isn't related to politics at all, that's largely kind of ideological or cultural, and they might end up going after a brand or a product or a film release and, and kind of uses, again, like those same tools for manipulating public discourse, but for some other reason. And so for us, it's more about the patterns of these like false trending patterns these patterns of manipulative coordination, regardless of what their focus or their intention is. You know how when you walk into a casino, you've been psychologically outsmarted by billions of dollars. Like it's a maze so that you you have trouble getting through and you're more likely to sit at a machine and there's no windows, there's no clock, so you can't keep track of time. There's even some theory that they're pumping more oxygen into the casino to make you more comfortable and stay longer. I kind of get that feeling online now that I'm just being completely outsmarted by these organizations which are pushing me either to buy products or to be angry about some political issue or to support some position which I, I wouldn't normally have. I think that's a very accurate characterization. Um, and actually, there's a, a researcher and um, an activist called Tristan Harris and he works with a group called the Center for Humane Technology, and they coined the expression attention hijacking. They talk a lot about the addictive properties of whether it's our smartphones or whether it's social media platforms, um, how they are using, they're gaming our psychology in order to elicit the desired behavior, it, exactly like you're describing. And in other environments like casinos, they're doing the same thing. They've, they've figured out how to hack how we feel so that we engage in the behavior that ultimately benefits them. It's a very apt comparison, and, uh, and I think very accurate. 
I guess as a final here, Jonathan, I'm curious what your advice would be for someone navigating the online world, for a teenager navigating the online world. How do how do we stay safe? How do we keep from being manipulated? I mean, I have a teenager, and so you know, she and I talk a lot about what it means for her to engage online. It's such a normal part of of her culture and and, and everybody who she interacts with. I, I think a couple things are important. Serious conversations don't happen on the internet. I think we'd like them to. I think that was the initial ideal, you know, this kind of utopian democratic ideal where the best ideas rise to the top. Substantive conversations don't happen on the internet. So if you're going to talk about politics, if you're going to talk about these bedrock social issues that ultimately shape the direction of our society and our like public conscience, talk about those offline. Because everything on the internet is designed to provoke a response. Content is a means to an end online. It's not an end in itself, uh, which I think is the thing that, interestingly, I think young people are starting to intuit. It's a lot of fun to socialize online, but that's all we're doing is like frivolous social interactions and the substantive work that we're doing where we're debating the kind of big ideas, where we're coming to big conclusions about the directions we want our country to go, about what our future should be. Let's move that back to where it belongs, which is in person. All right, Jonathan Morgan. And really quick, if people want to find this dashboard, where can they find it? Uh, They can go to disinfo2018.com or they can just go to newknowledge.com. All right. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you talking. That's it for Bots and Ballots this week. This is my 22nd episode and the end of season one. I'll be back in 2020 to cover this space as the presidential election gets rolling. As I've said before, I think the biggest story of this year will be regulation, and we got a hint on how that might end up this week when the New York Times revealed Facebook's response to the Russian fake news crisis of 2016, which was bad. According to the report, Facebook tried to deny the threat, then pushed a George Soros is backing our critic strategy spearheaded by a Washington lobbying group. Facebook has since fired that company, and Mark Zuckerberg said that he was unaware that he hired them. But the fact that Facebook would use the same fake news pipeline it was having trouble with to smear its critics, even indirectly, is deeply troubling and should make anyone doubt if they're capable of addressing the problem on their own. Look for Congress to start pounding on social media companies in 2019. So special thanks this week to David Knowles, my editor, who has consistently made this broadcast more interesting and timely. To Yahoo News for giving me the opportunity to cover the biggest story of our day. To my fantastic producer, Leah Hitchens, who helped me snag some amazing guests. Kristen Cabrera helped with field recording this week. I'm Grant Burningham. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in 2020. 